Would you bow with me in prayer? Father God, as we come to this portion in our service of worship, remind us that the hearing of your word is just as much a part of worship. Giving attention to the word that is taught and proclaimed is important to us. We pray that you'd bless the one who brings the word this morning. He is a sinner in need of grace. Bless your people who hear the word. It's work and labor to hear the word, Father. There are a lot of distractions that rise from within our own hearts. So we pray the Spirit of God would quicken us and enable us, Lord, to listen attentively, discerningly, and to take from this passage what the Spirit of God intends for us to take today. And we ask this all in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Before I begin, just reminding you, we do have a Morrison nursing home service today at 1.30, if you care to join us. Okay, we're coming, we're coming, we're coming, we're coming to the end of Romans. The Roman road is almost done here at Whitefield Christian Church in terms of the exposition of this wonderful epistle. Um, so we come to the, uh, it's kind of like Paul tidying things up, you know. Um, I think that the Apostle Paul was a stream of consciousness kind of guy. Um You see this happening, I think, quite often in his letters. He's starting to make a statement or a declaration, and all of a sudden there's this digression. Um, And if you're a student of Greek, you understand that he's got some long sentences before he stops, and English translators try try to help us with that. It's also clear that Paul dictated most of his letters. So here's a trick question. Who wrote the letter to the Romans? You answer, Paul, you'd be wrong. Tertius who wrote that letter. Okay, Paul dictated it. Tertius wrote it. Okay, we see that in today's text as well. That's a freebie. Now, something he says, you see, will spark an additional idea, and off he goes. It's digressions. Now, nothing he says in those particular digressions is superfluous. I want to stress that. Okay. Of, of, uh, nothing is nothing is superfluous. Of course, the Holy Spirit was at work in all these letters, and the final text was what he wanted, even the digressions. Okay. Now we find evidence of this in today's text, and even last week's text. We have this lengthy greeting in chapter 16, and we saw some important truths from this greeting as well. I'm not going to rehearse those. It was customary for Paul to conclude his letters with greetings to and greetings from. Greetings to and greetings from. He has just finished with an extended greeting to. 26 names are mentioned. And ends by telling the Roman believers that all the churches of Christ greet you. Now he's beginning those greetings from. It was probably something here in that phrase. All the churches of Christ greet you that triggered what he goes on to say in verses 17 and 20, which seems to be a digression. And then he gets back to the greetings from in verse 21. What is that something? That something was his ever present vigilance for the gospel. And it's being on his guard against false teachers who cause divisions and set up obstacles in local churches. Paul was not only passionate about proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, establishing churches, 
under the called and qualified leadership of elders, he was also as passionately concerned to ward off false teaching that corrupted the gospel and harmed believers and set up strife and division within local churches. Just as passionate about that. It seemed wherever the gospel went, false teaching was not far behind. You think things have changed? Not at all. Now, there is no evidence that false teachers were present in Rome at the time Paul wrote the letter. Paul was writing from Corinth. He had countered numerous times in Asia and Greece on his missionary journeys, and the specter of false teaching was not far from Rome either, and he knew that. So to be forewarned is to be what? Forearmed. That's what he's doing. So the New Testament writers often warn us, not just Paul, but the other New Testament writers, John too, often warn us, of being on guard against false teaching and false teachers. False teaching is, listen to me, false teaching is as immoral as sin. Sinful conduct. False teaching is as immoral as sexual impurity. Do you believe that? I mean, the, the issue here is, is life or death. Okay? False teaching influences the mind and affections which leads to ungodly behavior. False teaching, in its very essence, dishonors God. Why? Because it misrepresents God. It misrepresents the truth about God. Even in the New Testament documents, we see two strains of heretical teaching that seems to arise again and again. That right out of the gate, as the gospel made its way into the first century Roman world, that the apostles had to take on this false teaching, so as to defend the churches that were being established. Now, what are those two general strains? Well, of course, the standard for the truth always is God's word, right? The inspired, infallible, and errant word of God, the canonical documents of both the Old and New Testaments. You can't unhitch the Old Testament from Christianity, despite what some popular preachers are saying. Must not do that. So whatever is taught that does not conform to the whole counsel of God revealed in Holy Scripture is simply error. Now, of course, that begs the question. We need to understand what the Scriptures teach, right? There are cults that say they believe the Bible, okay? But they don't. They twist the Scriptures. Paul warns us of those who do that. So these strands of error were these. The first error also had two substrands. It's what was known as the error of Gnosticism. From the word knowledge. Gnostic teaching comes right out of the gate, it seems. It comes to full bore in the second and third century, but right from the very beginning. Gnostic teaching denied that God could have any contact with the physical and material or temporal world. Why? For that's where evil resided. This meant that the God of the scriptures could not have created the cosmos. Nor could the Son of God ever become incarnate. Oh, it appeared that he was a man, but he really wasn't a man because God could not come in contact with the material cosmos. Now, this view is reflected especially in John's gospel and his letters and even in the book of Revelation. So this Gnostic stuff, you know, is very potent. Again, material 
matter. Matter itself is the source of all evil. God didn't create matter. Some lesser God created matter. So one substrand of Gnosticism tended to track in a more very legalistic direction. And Paul hints at this in his letter to the Colossians, where he writes, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. God tells us all things he, all things he creates are good, right? That's, that's, but this Gnosticism denied that. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. All this do not, do not, do not. And asceticism and severity, severity to the body. But they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The more laws and regulations you put on yourself without Jesus at the center, the more bondage you're going to experience and the more God is going to be dishonored. Well, the other strand of Gnosticism went in the opposite direction. There was the idea that with secret spiritual knowledge, the mature Christian would know that it was this soul, the inner life, that was important. And my inner life is impervious to the physical world. Therefore, I can indulge in the physical world all I want. I can eat as much as I want. I can drink as much as I want. I can sleep around as much as I want. doesn't matter. I can still stay faithful to God because, you see, that stuff doesn't really affect what I really am. I have that special knowledge of God in my soul, and that's what saves me, and therefore I can just do whatever I want. Well, that's reflected also in the New Testament. In Revelation for example, both the churches at Ephesus and Smyrna were adversely affected by the teaching of a group called the Nicolaitans, who were advocating unhindered freedom to indulge the body in such activities, for the body was not the true person. These physical things could never harm the inner life, the inner man, the soul. So they taught a kind of libertine Christianity where the moral law of God had no guiding place or influence. So Jesus himself says these words. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. If you know the Old Testament account, Balak was trying to get Balaam to curse Israel. And every time he sought to curse Israel, he wound up blessing Israel. So Balak gave up the prophecy and said to Balaam, just bring some of your women over. Just tempt these men with sexual immorality according to the worship of your gods. And that's what suckered them right in. And he goes on and says, Jesus says, you have the same kind of teaching in the churches of Smyrna and Ephesus. So, also, you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So this Gnosticism went in two different directions, and it's in the New Testament. The other major false teaching that Paul addressed was that which he confronts in Galatians. In, in the letter to the Galatians. Jewish Christians who, yes, believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah, and yes, it was necessary for people to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. Yes, you could not be saved without that. That's true. Yes, 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 that's true. But whenever you have Jesus at a plus sign, you're in danger. You're in danger. Jesus shrinks. It's a shrinking Jesus syndrome. When you add anything to the gospel, to the roots of what it makes 
you acceptable to God. Jesus is shrunk. Jesus plus law shrinks Jesus. Jesus plus performance shrinks Jesus. Jesus plus anything shrinks Jesus. You see, this is what Paul is so adamant about. He's willing to endure a lot of personal assaults. Philippians tells us that people were preaching the gospel in order to uh, counter Paul. They, 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 thought, they, they thought this would hurt him, him and so he didn't care. But when you mess with the gospel content, he took off the gloves, didn't he? The law was seen by the Judaizers as along with Jesus, the necessary root system of salvation and not the fruit of salvation secured only by and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Gnostic teaching undermined the Bible's teaching on the nature of God, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and human sinfulness. And these all have huge impact on the teaching of the gospel. And legalism diminishes the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and his finished work, so that which alone by grace saves sinners. It leaves one under the condemnation of the law by making obedience a root issue of the gospel rather than a fruit issue of the gospel. Now notice, Paul begins in verse 17. Again, that's all background. Paul had all of this in his head, I believe. Paul knew these teachings, and and he, he knew the concern he had for the Roman believers. So Paul issues a stern warning or appeal, it comes across by, I appeal to you, or I urge you, brothers and sisters. Now, he doesn't say, I make a suggestion to you. Just a little aside. You could take it or leave it. No, I urge you. I appeal to you. With all his apostolic authority. Paul is earnest or serious about this matter, and he wants his readers to be serious about false teaching too. He wants you, dear saint, to be sincerely concerned about false teaching too. So the first thing we need to do is pay attention to this apostolic injunction. It's a serious matter. It's not a, it's not a <laughs> maybe I'll be concerned about it. You've got to be concerned about it. I've got to be concerned about it. Now, there are two reasons Paul gives us that we are to have regarding, two responses, I mean, that we are to have regarding false teaching Okay, false teaching, heretical teaching. Now, heretical teaching usually, again, um, messes with the nature of God, the created reality itself. Is that happening today? I'll make up my own reality, right? Right? With human nature itself, both made in God's image, but fallen, glorious ruins that we are. Heretical teaching also attacks the person and work of Christ. That's nothing new. That's Whatever you might find out there in the marketplace of ideas, when it comes to heretical teaching, you're going to find issues like this. So what are we to do? First, Paul says, we are to watch out for false teaching. Now, false teaching never shows up on its own, but is carried by false teachers. We are to keep a watchful lookout or eye on those who hold to and propagate false teaching. We measure, again, what we, what we hear by the standard of the light of God's word. So watch out. Be on your guard. Second, and this is the reason we're to watch out. Second, we are to avoid false teaching. We're to avoid false teachers. Now, this is in the context of the greeting, okay? 
I, this is where I think the digression comes in. Paul has been greeting, greet those, greet those. But what does that greeting mean? It means welcome them as believers. Welcome them as fellow saints. Welcome them, welcome them. Then when he comes, wait a minute, but don't welcome these guys. You see? Now you realize that the word gullible is not in, a new, it's not in the dictionary, right? You realize that, right? The word gullible is not in the dictionary. If you believe that, you're gullible, right? Because it is in the dictionary. How many of you believe that? Yeah, yeah. The point simply is, Paul says, listen, yes, greet, 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 greet believers. But don't greet false teachers. Avoid them. We are, we are not to greet them as Paul is doing to his Roman brothers and sisters or to welcome them as Paul is urging the Roman believers to welcome Phoebe. Now, this may sound harsh. It may sound unloving. And certainly we pray for false teachers. We pray for those who have been suckered into false teaching. It may sound harsh. It may sound unloving. But it is the apostolic directive for how to deal with false teachers. John makes this very clear in his second epistle. And John's dealing with Gnostics now. John is dealing with those who deny the incarnation of the Son of God. If you deny the incarnation of the Son of God, if you deny the hypostatic union of Christ in two natures, fully God and fully man in one, two natures in one being, if you deny that, you, under, you undermine the gospel. You can't have salvation with a human man. You just can't do it. So he says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. You're not to greet them. So when, when I have Jehovah's Witnesses come to my door, I don't let them into my house. I stand outside and I speak the truth to them in love. I, 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 don't, I don't deny their humanity. I don't, I'm not harsh with them. I'm not, I'm not, you know, pushing them up against the wall. I'm just telling them the truth in love. But I do not see them as my brothers and sisters in Christ. And you must not either because they're not. They bear, they, bear, they bear false teaching. Now, the reason is that false teaching and those who bring false teaching cause division within local fellowships and create obstacles that are contrary to the teaching of the gospel and the word of God. False teaching in an evangelical local church will always bring division. Always. Those who teach false doctrine wreak havoc in the church. False teaching is an infestation. False teaching presents moral and intellectual obstacles that make it hard for you to be influenced by the truth. False thinking really hinders you from being influenced by the truth. It causes you to stumble. So the standard is the gospel. Paul says the standard is the gospel or the doctrine that you have been taught. Did you have been taught? The apostolic instruction concerning the Christ. That's the standard. This is very serious business. Another concern to weigh is that false teachers do not serve our Lord Christ, says Paul. 
They serve their own bellies, literally. They serve their own bellies. The ESV and the Net Bible translates it this way. They serve their own appetites. In other words, they are self-serving. False teachers are self-serving. They are self-absorbed idolaters. It is their own interests they are serving and not the interests of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. In Philippians, Paul describes such false teachers and those who cause divisions as enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, he had no problem talking to them about false systems of belief, false teaching. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. See, it's not just harshness, it's brokenness. With tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. He's getting to the motivation. Finally, false teachers are influential. (laughs) They seek to persuade with smooth talk and flattery. Such designs are the mechanisms of how they deceive those who are not grounded in the faith. Those who are gullible, those who are naive, those who are simple-minded and unsuspecting. False teachers are advocates of error and as self-promoters use manipulative approaches and tactics to deceive those who are not on their guard. So Paul warns in Colossians that we need to get grounded in the truth so that no one will delude us by plausible arguments. That seems pretty plausible to me. He also warns his readers to see to it that no one takes you captive by vain philosophy and empty conceit according to the traditions of men, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. He warns in Timothy, 1 Timothy, to be careful not to wander away into vain discussions. Further, he speaks of the dangers of irreverent and silly myths. Then Paul elaborates in more detail on this matter of the motivation design of false teaching in 1 Timothy, where he says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. You know, that's so important. The gospel does create a degree of humility within the teacher. You know, I mean... Here, Paul says, no, false teaching is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions. And constant friction among people who are depraved in mind, depraved in mind, and deprived of the truth. Depraved and deprived. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Follow the money trail. (laughs) In the the broader religious, you know, generally Christian world of, you know, of the United States, follow the money trail. You'll find false teaching there. The New Testament never presents false teachers as merely deceived themselves. Of course they are. But as at heart self-absorbed, they use tactics that are marked by manipulation. And Peter speaks of how false teachers in their greed seek to exploit us with false words. Now, that's pretty strong stuff, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is the, the warning the scriptures give us. 
So no church, you see, is ever so sound or mature that the community can let down their guard. One of the responsibilities of the elders of the flock is to guard the flock from error. Really. Paul gives as his reason for warning the Romans to watch out for and avoid false teachers was, interestingly, their obedience. Their obedience was known to all. That's the reason he says, I warn you, for your obedience is known to all. Now, that's what's going on here. And Paul indeed rejoices, but he also knows that danger is never far away. The believers at Rome had a vital testimony of faith that wants to be preserved. The believers at Rome had a vital testimony of faith shown by obedience broadcast throughout the Roman Empire. They were known for their obedience. Here was a sound and mature gospel-centered fellowship of churches, yet they could not rest on their laurels. Maybe it was for this reason that they might actually become a target for false teachers. At any rate, they could not assume that they were immune from false teachers with their false teaching. So the corrective that enables any church, any believer, both to be on guard against and to avoid false teaching, have nothing to do with error, is both wisdom and innocence, interestingly enough. Wisdom and innocence. He says, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. Yes, I do. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. And in these words, recall Jesus's admonition to his disciples. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, the contrast here between good and evil is that between orthodox teaching and heterodox teaching, true teaching and false teaching, biblical teaching and biblical error. Yet all teaching, whether true or false, shapes conduct. So that, so that could also be what Paul has in view here. One ancient commentator stated it this way, and I like this translation or I like this statement. It's not a translation, but a statement. Aim to be too good to deceive and too wise to be deceived. Aim to be too good to be to deceive, too good to deceive, and too wise to be deceived. Be wise to what is good is to allow the truth of the gospel and God's word to shape you. Be open. Listen, I plead with you. Be teachable. Be wise in the teaching you hear, but be teachable to the truth. Be open, be teachable to the truth. Be wise by sticking with the basics, the plain but nourishing truth of sound teaching that conforms to the scriptures. Yet simultaneously be innocent as to what is evil. Avoid false teaching so that you remain innocent to its charms, that it does not soil your mind, heart, and conscience, and thereby shape your conduct and your behavior. Now, I know I'm talking in generalities. I know I've got a, a, a shotgun approach here rather than a rifle. I'm just warning you of the, generality, the generalities. I could be specific, but that would be five or six or seven or eight or nine or ten or twelve sermons more. Be aware. It's there. It's on the air. It's in Christian radio even. All right? Just because it says Christian radio doesn't mean what you're hearing is godly. Be on your guard against what you watch on television, on cable. Be on, be on your guard on the Internet. Be on your guard. 
and avoid. Yet the author behind all false teaching is Satan. The counterweight to all his influences is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they are set against one another in Paul's peace wish to them. He finally has his peace wish. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. False teaching also robs us of peace, of true spiritual flourishing. You know, peace is not simply the absence of warfare and hostilities. It's shalom. It's the presence of wholeness of mind and soul and flourishing. So what potent words these are. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. Satan means adversary under your feet. Now, we, what's Paul meaning here? Certainly he's quoting from Genesis 3.15. I mean, he's re- alluding to it, not quoting. He's alluding to that Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel promise. There it reads that the serpent will have its head bruised by the seed of the woman. Not by the woman, but by the seed of the woman. That the serpent will bruise the seed's heel. And that seed, of course, is the promised redeemer. Here Paul teaches that the God of peace, the God who reconciles sinners to himself, thus bringing peace, will soon crush Satan under the feet of the saints. Now, What does he mean by that? The word soon messes with people's heads. Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. Well, it it could be referring to God's perspective on the passing of time. Peter tells us a 1,000 years is one day. One day is a 1,000 years. So he could be speaking of the final demise of Satan at the second coming of the Lord Jesus. But I think not. Could be. Can't be dogmatic. Yet it can also be a reference to gospel victories that occur in this present age. Think with me. Every gospel conversion is God, the God of peace, crushing Satan. We saw the God of peace crushing Satan here this morning. Every conversion. Okay? Every averted church strife. Every diverted church, averted church division with its strife and misunderstanding where unity flourishes is the God of peace crushing Satan. Every time I'm willing to put your interests before myself in any potential conflict or disagreement is God crushing Satan under our feet. Again and again and again. So Here it's probably a reference to God outdoing by the gospel the schemes and strategies of false teachers as they take aim against the churches of Rome. I think the best, the best way of dealing with false teaching is preaching the truth. Preaching the truth consistently, regularly. And Paul picks up his greetings again. But now they are greetings from his fellow workers or associates who are with him in Corinth from where he has composed the letter. So he says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me, and to the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greets you. What do you do with this? We talked about this last week. Next to the genealogies, these things probably just go, oh, I'm these are real people. You know, these are our brothers and sisters. <laughs> they are. We'll see them one day, you see. And it's, it's cool to me to see these names, you see. Put a, to see these names in these texts. Timothy is well known to us. Well, not well known, but he's known. 
He was very close and dear to Paul, who treated him as his son in the faith. He was uh, taught the scriptures as a child, note this, and a youth by his pious mother and grandfather and grandmother. And he took the helm of the church at Ephesus. He was timid. <laughs> but Paul just loved him to pieces. He was a faithful command companion and fellow worker of Paul. Lucius could be the one called Lucius of Cyrene from the church in Antioch, who was numbered among the prophets and teachers there in Acts 16, who was one of the several through whom the Holy Spirit revealed his call to Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel to the Gentiles in Asia. Could be. Jason is probably the one who gave shelter to Paul when he first arrived in Thessalonica and had his home attacked and was himself, along with some of the brothers, dragged before the city authorities because they couldn't find Paul. The rabble who did this reported to the authorities that these men were acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. You bet your bottom dollar there's another king. His name is Jesus. Sosipater is probably the Berean Sopater who accompanied Paul when he returned to Syria carrying the gift for the Jerusalem church. All of these were Jews of the faith. Tertius is only mentioned by name. He mentions himself. Finally, I get a chance to say my, my name. You know, he, he is Paul's secretary. He is Paul's amnuensis, at least in this letter, by whom Paul dictated the letter. He adds a personal greeting, identifying himself as the one who wrote this particular letter. And Gaius is no doubt the Gaius who, in, who is from Corinth, whom Paul baptized. Although other named, others are named Gaius, are mentioned in Acts and in the New Testament letters. This Gaius obviously was from Corinth, for he not only hosted Paul in his home, but the church in, of Corinth as well. So maybe the church gathered in his home. And some homes were lavish and large, and 80 or 90 people could fill those homes. So he may have been a man of some means. Erastus was a public figure, a civil servant in Corinth, who, according to Acts 19.22, accompanied Paul at least partway on his journey back to Palestine when he was bringing that gift. He's also mentioned in Paul's second letter to Timothy as being back in Corinth. So he was with Paul even after his imprisonment in Rome. Hmm. Quartus is only mentioned here. So we would like to know more about these people. In fact, we would like to know more about Paul and the other apostles, wouldn't we? I would anyway. One of the things these greetings do, at least to me, is underscore just how effectual the preaching of the gospel was in the first century. Here, we, here were people who were Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, slave and free, who were brought to saving faith by the gospel of Jesus Christ and kept and preserved from false teaching at the same time. So when we read through the Romans, when we read through Romans and when we come to the warning against false teaching here at the end of the epistle, that was intermingled with those greetings, we know that the historic Christian faith is not simply a philosophical system of ideas for those who have the leisure to sit around and ponder ethereal notions. The truth of the gospel and the errors that arose against it impact people like you and me. People. People. And that impact is eternal in nature and scope. As Paul had Tertius write in the opening of this letter, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Right? 
People, people, people. People have always and remain the reason why we proclaim the gospel and stand our guard against false teaching and false teachers. For ultimately, all to the glory of God. And by the way, that's how Paul ends Romans. And we'll see that in a couple of weeks. Let's pray. Father God, help us as we've heard your word to recognize the importance of what we've heard. May your spirit take it to our hearts. And Lord, whatever we need to think about and ponder and whatever changes need to be made, we pray that you would do that as well. Help us to do that as well. Bless the rest of this service as we now go to the table. In Jesus' name, amen. So Nathaniel and the crew, come on up.